Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. So this week's Parsha, Vayishlach, is named for Yaakov's actions at the beginning of the Parsha, where he sends messengers ahead to his brother Esav, who was living in Seir. So what's the background of what's happening here? Yaakov has been with Lavan for 20 years. He's amassed wives, children, property, etc. Now it's time to go back home to Canaan to see Yitzchak Aviv, to see Isaac, his father. But in order to do so, he knows that he's going to have to encounter Esav and Esav's people and the land. And so he has to send messengers ahead to try to figure out how is this encounter going to work? Are they going to let us through? How is this going to go? Now, why is there even a concern? Because of course we have to remember that Yaakov has run away in the first place because after he stole the bracha from from Esav, from Yitzchak, Esav declared that he was going to kill Yaakov. And so that's what precipitated Yaakov running away. It's now been 20 years. They've both been through an enormous amount and clearly grown a lot from individuals into maybe not nations quite yet, but certainly camps, clans, what have you. And so now, how is this going to go when Yaakov and Esav are going to encounter each other 20 years after that incredibly tense and dramatic and frightening scene with stealing the blessings. And it's very clear that there is one big question plaguing Yaakov that is causing tremendous fear and anxiety, which is, does Esau still want to kill me, right? How's this going to go? Is it going to be that I'm traveling with my whole family and Esau just going to come out and strike us all down because he said he was going to kill me and he's still going to own up to it. So there's a lot of tension already when we enter this scene. And we have to, there's a big mystery, a big question mark over how's this encounter going to go? And the shot, I think, of the text enables us to read it in a variety of different ways, which I think is why this scene generates a lot of different rabbinic commentary. Is Esau genuine? Does Yaakov really have a right to be so afraid? How does the scene resolve? Does it resolve? Is it in Yaakov's favor and Esau's favor, etc.? A whole lot of questions, which of course is one of the beauties of the Torah, that the Torah can give us these scenes that tell us a lot and yet also at the same time don't really tell us anything at all. So what I wanted to do today is just to run through this scene, both the buildup to it and then the actual encounter itself, and then talk about one a way that the word brother, that the word ach is used through the scene to help us shed light on some of the dynamics that I think I would suggest were at play here. So as we said, in the very beginning of the parsha, by Yishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefanav El Esav Achiv. Right, so Yaakov sends messengers ahead to his brother Esav, presumably to try to suss out, to try to figure out what exactly should I expect. And what do these messengers say? They say, um, basically, my lord Esav, I'm your servant Jacob. I've stayed with Lavan until now. I've gotten lots of animals. I've got slaves. And I'm sending you this message, right, to, in the hope of gaining your favor, as the JPS translates it. The messengers, they then so they go to Esav, they relay this message, and then they come back to Yaakov, and they say, okay, we saw Esav, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men with him. Now, 
400 men. What does that mean? Does that mean he's bringing a whole welcome party? Or does that mean he's bringing an army? Yaakov clearly senses the latter, thinking that Esau is now coming with an army of men to take down himself and his whole family. Because the next pasuk tells us that Vayira Yaakov me'od. Yaakov was greatly frightened. And he's so anxious that he divides the people into two camps. Thinking, as the next Pasuk tells us, that if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, maybe the other camp can escape. Right? Divide the risk, distribute the risk as much as possible in the hopes that someone will survive. That is a very stark way of thinking. That shows us that Yaakov is truly expecting the worst, and he wants to be prepared for the worst. So then Yaakov turns to God and offers a prayer and says, okay, God, God of Abraham and God of Yitzchak, you said, go back home and I will do well. Um, basically, if, if you save me from my brother Esav, um, you know, I will do everything for you. Um, and he's just not even really necessarily even offering anything in particular, but just expressing his fears and his anxieties, right? He's got no one else to turn to, to say, I'm so scared. You said you were going to watch out for me. And I basically, it's not actually articulated explicitly, but assumingly, like, I hope you actually do, because I don't know what else to do. Okay, that's the first Aliyah. Second Aliyah, next morning, he takes an enormous amount of animals, right? 20, 200 goats, female goats, 20 male goats, uh, camels, everything, everything. He gives them to his own servants and he says, okay, and he divides them into groups and he says, go ahead, but keep some distance in between all of you. And when Esau sees you, he's going to see these big groups of animals and people walking around, right? Um, he's going to say, where are you going? Whose are these animals, etc." And you should respond. These are your servant Jacob's, right? And they're a gift for you, Esau and Yaakov's right behind us. And so he gives each of the groups the same instructions. <clears throat> thinking that if I give Yaakov, I mean, Esau, all of these gifts, maybe once again, he'll find favor in me. Right? He'll show me favor. So those gifts go ahead, right? You can appreciate with all the back and forth, this is a huge process of trying to, to you know, he's grasping at straws almost like, how do I find a way to appease Esau? How am I going to find a way to make sure to try to guarantee my chances that I will come out of this alive, that my family will come out of this alive. So then we have the scene with the wrestling of the angel. So it's the next morning again, and Yaakov looks up and he sees Esav coming with his 400 men. And he divides his kids up, putting his most cherished wife and child, Rachel and Yosef at the back. That's probably not the best family dynamic, but that's a separate conversation. And so he then goes ahead and he bows low to the ground seven times until he reaches his brother. So in case Esau hadn't already gotten the message from the initial messengers with the gifts, in case Esau hadn't gotten the message from all the, from all the, the next rounds of gifts of animals and servants and messengers, etc., well, he's definitely gotten the message now as Yaakov is bowing down to him seven times. 
Now, that's Yaakov's position. What does Esav do? Vayarat Esav likrato v'yichabkehu. Vayipol al tzavarav v'yishakehu v'yivku. Esav ran to greet him. He embraced him, falling on his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. And then he looks at all of Yaakov's family, and he says, who are these? And Yaakov says, oh, these are my children who God has blessed me with. And then the next amazing thing that happens is that Yaakov has them all slowly come forward, bowing to Esau once again. I feel like I've got to imagine Esau felt so uncomfortable in this scene. And you kind of get a sense of that also, because he says in chapter 33, verse 8, Right? What do you mean by who what's going on with all of this with this gigantic group of people? And Yaakov says, Right? Well, I'm trying to gain favor, my lord's again, my lord's favor. Esav says back to him, Yeshli Ravachi. Right? I've got enough. You keep what you have. I've got plenty. And Yaakov says, no, 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 please, please, please accept this gift. Please accept all these things. God's given me bracha. I've got plenty. Take, take, take. And finally, Esav accepts it. And then Esav says, well, okay, let's go home. I'll walk your pace. I know you've got a lot of your family. Everyone's exhausted. You know. And Yaakov says, no, 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 no. We take too long. You go ahead. You go ahead. We'll meet you there. And Esau says, well, let me help you. And then Yaakov says, no, no, no. You're too nice. You're too nice. It's okay. Really? You go ahead. We'll make it. And then of course, Yaakov never goes. He goes instead to Shechem. Um, well, he goes to Sukkot and then to Shechem when Esav has gone back to Seir. A very sad ending for this scene. So as we said, if you're trying to act this out, I would think that you're ending up with Yaakov, who's being almost comically self-deprecating and self-depriving. And you've got Esav standing there, who's just excited to see him. And Esav keeps saying, I don't understand why you're trying to give me all this stuff. Like, I don't want this stuff. I'm just happy to see you. And it's just like almost comically awkward um, dynamic where they're like not on the same page at all. Now, as I said in the beginning, so many different ways to read this scene. I've kind of given you my take on it as I read it, um, because I, I do think that that's what the shot is really getting at. But certain rabbis look and they say, no, Esav, he isn't really genuine. He, he, you know, those 400 men, they are an army. The reason that Esav doesn't want to let Yaakov, you know, go trail behind and come his own paces because he wants to make sure Yaakov doesn't run away. There's lots of negative readings of that also. There's also the, the famous Midrash going back to chapter 33, verse 4, when it says um, that Esav, kehu, he, he embraced uh, Yaakov, but he pulled out and he fell in his neck, kehu, and he kissed him. And there are six dots above the word kehu. And so one of the Midrashim, there's a Midrash that says this means that Esav was genuine in his kissing of Yaakov, which is very interesting. But there's also a Midrash that says, ah, it means instead of Vishakehu, that he kissed him, instead Vinashcho, that he bit him. And the Midrash actually that Esav like bore his teeth. And at that moment, Yaakov's neck turned to marble. So that when Esav tried to bite Yaakov's neck, instead he, he couldn't, you know, instead he broke his teeth. Right, imagining that Esau is sort of like this vampire um, who tried to to kill Yaakov, or at least wound him, um, in this initial scene. 
So what do we do with this? Do we read it as Esau is genuine? Do we read it as Esau is evil? Do we read it as Yaakov is um, accurate in his anxieties about Esau? Or do we read it as Yaakov is being completely over the top and unnecessarily anxious and misreading Esau 100%? So what I want, what I really noticed this year, I mean, I, I really love the story of Asav. I've spent a tremendous amount of time researching it and studying it. So one thing I wanted to focus on this year is the way the pronouns that are used to discuss or to refer to Yaakov and Asav and how they think about each other throughout this story. So We'll just give a review, and then when you're in shul and Shabbos, if you're in shul or if you're learning the parsha, you can pay close attention to what words appear when. Now, the very first word, of the very first pasuk of the parsha, right? He sends messengers to Esav, his brother. But then, in the next pasuk, when he tell, when he actually gives the instructions to the messengers, he says, "Ko tomrun adoni ko amar Yaakov." So he says, here's what you're going to say to my Adon, my master, um, or here, Kotamrun, like, and then also, Ko Amar of Decha. Here is what your servant Yaakov said. So it's this is already very strange. In verse four, Yaakov knows that Esav is his brother. But in verse five, when he's communicating the message, he doesn't say, here's say, here's what your brother Yaakov has to say. It's here's what your servant Yaakov has to say. Yaakov knows that Esav is his brother. And yet he doesn't think that that dynamic is what's going to help him in reuniting with Esav. He thinks that that's going to damage him. And instead he uses, he relies on Avdecha, right? Your servant. He establishes a power dynamic in which Esav is the master and Yaakov is the servant. And then he continues that he uses, he refers to Esav as Adoni again in verse six. And then interestingly, the messengers, they come back to Yaakov in verse seven and they say, we've got, we went to your brother to Esav. So it's like already what we're seeing is something very interesting. When Yaakov is talking about Esav, when Esav isn't actually there, Esav is his brother. Yaakov knows that the core of their relationship, it's not a rodef, right? Someone who's pursuing his life and a victim. It's not actually a master and a servant. They're brothers. But yet Yaakov doesn't rely on that dynamic when he actually has to communicate with Esav. Whenever he communicates with Esav, he says, you're the Adon, you're the master, and I am the Ebed, I am the servant. And if you follow along, you see this pattern continue to play itself out. So just as we skip ahead, verse 12, when he's turning, when Yaakov is turning to God and saying, please, you know, save me from Esav, he says, save me from the hand of my brother from Esav. Once again, Esav, when he is spoken about by Yaakov and not spoken to, he is the brother. He is not the Adon. And then a same thing happens in chapter 32, verse 18, when he's speaking to the servants and preparing them, he says, when my brother Esav talks to you. But of course, in verse 19 in chapter 32, what is the message when his brother Esav meets him? It's you're going to say, 
לעבדך ליעקב, מנחה השלוחה לאדוני לעשיו. Your servant, this is all of your servant Jacob's stuff, and they are a gift to my Lord Esav. We see this play out, continues, continues, continues. And now, and now through everything through the next day when he's getting ready, it's all servants, servants, servants. And then we get to chapter 33 and to the scene itself, where Yaakov is now not just verbalizing that you are the Adon and I'm the Avid. He's actually literally physically expressing it by bowing down. And as he's bowing down, he is treating Esav like the master and himself like the servant. And what's fascinating here is that what is the exact dynamic that Esav rejects? It's that. Esav is leaning right into the brotherly dynamic. And in fact, when he speaks to Yaakov directly in verse 9 in chapter 33 to say, dude, I have enough. He says, it says, Yeshli rav achi. I've got plenty, my brother. Right? Esav here is embracing the brotherly dynamic. What you have is yours, what I have is mine. I've got plenty. I don't see you as a, an opportunity to get more stuff from you. You're my brother. Right? You're not my servant. You're my brother. You take yours. Like what? It's almost like he's saying, what are you doing? Right? Like this isn't what we are. We're brothers. We're not, uh, there's no power dynamic going here. As I said earlier, I imagine that Asaph is almost like baffled by this dynamic. Just saying like, what's going on? And it's amazing to see because it continues and Asaph says, all right, let's go walk together. And when Asaph, and when Yaakov rejects him, in verse 13, he says, Vayomer lav Adoni kol hayeladim. Right? My master knows. My Lord knows. And so then the Avorna Adoni. So let, why don't you go ahead? Ya- Yaakov, in no point in this interaction with Esav, can see that Esav has only ever seen him as his brother. Yaakov cannot step out of that dynamic in which he is portraying Esav as his master and him as the servant. But we know that that is just a show because in the background, when Esav isn't actually there, Yaakov speaks about him as his brother. It's only when he is meeting Esav face to face, when Esav's actually within earshot, that he speaks to him as the master versus the servant. And so when we think about what dynamics what what state of mind did both Yaakov and Esav bring to this scene? I think it's really important to recognize that, yes, 20 years ago, Esav left this as, I'm going to kill my brother when my dad dies, right? Like Esav was the one vowing to kill him. But 20 years later, Esav was the one who, from start to finish, just sees Yaakov as his brother. Esav is the one who's consistent in his dynamic. And Esav is the one who, as I would even claim, is confused by Yaakov's behavior and doesn't really understand what's going on. Yaakov is the one who 20 years later can't let go of that dynamic. Yaakov is the one who's still so immersed in his fear and anxiety that he can't see that Esav has moved on. And how do we know that? We know that because it is very clear that when Esav's not around, Yaakov knows he's his brother. But until the very time that they part for the last time that we actually see, Yaakov can't let go. He's still holding on to, you are my Adon, Adoni, Adoni, Adoni. 
he doesn't break out of that dynamic that Esav has already broken out of so long ago. And so when we think about who in this scene is genuine and who in this scene is putting on a show, I understand why people are inclined to think that Esav is lying because he's the one who left the previous scene so violent. But if you pay close attention to the text, it's really, it's not Esav, it's Yaakov. And I think that that sheds a very interesting light on his character. Um, and I think also offers us interesting lessons about what it means to hold on to our old dynamics, our old relationships, and what it means to be able to let go. Remarkably here, Esav is the one who can let go. Yaakov cannot. And because Yaakov can't let go, he never follows Esav. He leaves that relationship hanging. He frankly abandons Esav in many ways. And I can only imagine the kind of hurt that Esav felt when Yaakov and his family, they go to Sukkot and they never show up in Seir. Perhaps even embarrassment if Esav knew. There are 400 people with him. They're all waiting for Yaakov to come back. And I think that this should also be a lesson to us that it's hard to repair relationships. It's hard to move on. But sometimes those big, the biggest obstacles are the patterns that we're stuck in from the past. And that sometimes the hardest thing to do is to push ourselves to break out of them and be willing to see a better future. Shabbat Shalom.